January 24th, 2012, it's Watt from Pedro Show.
unquote. Watch for Pedro show uh, here in Casa Hanzo, San Pedro, uh, recording uh, for the fourth installment of the Unknown Instructors. Uh, with me, our guest, uh, George Hurley. Hey, Georgie. Hey, what's happening, Mike? Just started uh, this show with uh, John Coltrane doing What's New, and then we heard more famous quotes by Firehose, your little drum solo thing. Uh, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Actually, we had spiel and all that, right? We cut it all out to do the little drum thing there. That's right. Uh, let's talk about you getting on drums. Me getting on drums. Well, um, where'd you start out? You started out not in Pedro. Brockton, well, right? Where were you born? No. Not, well, where, where was I born? Oh, yeah. Brockton, Massachusetts, of course. Okay. When'd you I, come to Pedro? Yeah, I came to Pedro when I was... Yeah. Four years old. My dad got a job at the shipyard, Todd Shipyard. He was a shoemaker before that, so he kind of just changed careers, took a chance, came out here. He got a job there, and that's when uh, shipyards were going, the steel plants were still around, you know. It, that's Todd people was very were living happy. okay, you know. Yeah, I remember yeah, course, Todd. Yeah, we were living in the projects. Uh, I think it's called Yang Ming now. Yeah. China shipping, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yep, that's they right. They turned it into a can. Yeah, half the harbors, right. all Chinese uh, shipping companies whatever but anyhow i ended up in pedro and uh been there ever since still am in san pedro but the drum thing now the drums well when I, did you I, first think about drums <laughs> not not well, at four years old or did you yeah i think so maybe as far back as that okay well sort of i always loved drums i never thought about playing guitar i never thought about playing bass or, or a horn or anything but drums just kind of intrigued me for some reason or other i don't know why uh, maybe because Thrifty's was real close to our place, uh, you know, where we lived. Yeah. I used to go over there and get all the ice cream cartons and beat on them. Okay, okay. <laughs> they were what about watching or listening to drummers? Yeah, of course. I think probably my biggest impression came from my cousin, uh, Darlene. Uh, she had these stacks of 45s back in the day. Yeah, I mean, singles. Yeah, all the singles. You'd put about 20 of them on the 45 player, and they just drop one yeah. by one. And that's probably where I got my, my heaviest uh, musical influence was through her and her records. But even still, I, I never really could acquire a drum set until uh, I was 19 years old, yeah. 19, 20 years old, I think. Right, right, yeah. right. Did you play on other people's before I did, that? I, I've, yeah, a couple times. A little bum no, rush? Yeah, until they took them back. <laughs> <laughs> My drums, give them back to me. I hated parting with them, but they were their drums. Now, I know a little bit about the shed. You were building surfboards. Yeah, well, the shed, that was... Uh, in high school, we moved across the street from right. St. Peter High. But that ends up your first drum crack pad, right? Yeah, pretty much it. Yeah. But before that, it was to build surfboard. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I did some surfboard work in there and then at another friend's house. But it was just pretty much a party stoner oh, yeah. back shed. I mean, we used to drink Remember the side? Yeah. Olympic bonging yeah, team was yeah. on the hatch. Grass about 10 feet high from running, <laughs> pissing all over the backyard. And it... <laughs> but but yeah. what happened was you went to Hawaii a couple times? Well, I was big into surfing. I used right. to go quite a bit, you know, in high school and stuff. And, yeah, I went surfing in Hawaii when I was in the 10th grade. And then I did it once again after I got out. Yeah, I well, graduated. like living on the beach, right? Yeah, I tried that Chowing too. Chowing coconuts. Eating bugs or whatever. <laughs> that wasn't uh, but you got, too successful at living off the land there. You got pounded, though, the way the waves yeah. were rollers, right? Well, yeah, because, yeah, you know, like drowning is not a good way to no. die. <laughs> And I don't care how good a surfer you are. When you're out there, especially in strange places, man, going underwater and staying under for a while, you, maybe you might want to die at home. Yeah. <laughs> so 
So you come back. I knew my limit. I found out my limit with surfing right, then, right, you right. know, after I got out of high school. So you come back to uh, Pedro and you want to play drums. I always wanted to play drums. I mean, no I mean, what, I, but yeah. I'm going to get a set, that that kind of. Finally, I had this Indian mini bike, you know, and I, I finally I found a guy who's going to trade uh, my mini bike for his drums. Yeah. Not a full kit, but I, I managed to do that. And then I got some help from Phil Bono who at the Boys Club. Yeah. He gave me a couple parts because he used to be, uh, he was an instructor there at the wood shop. I used to always make drumsticks out of plexiglass all the time because you know even before that because i wanted i played a michael jackson you know like one bad apple and stuff with these oh, plexiglass yeah. drumsticks that i buffed out and made they'd end up breaking after a while <laughs> shattered See, i was getting down though. okay <laughs> i had the dreams the dream was full blown and going by then what was the first kit so the first kit was with i uh, traded the mini bank yeah. and phil bono helped me put together and uh after that, I just who no no, but who made that drum set? Yeah, that was a mix of drums. Okay, it was just a, just pieces that were put together. Some Ludwig, some Ravel, yeah. some Rogers. Yeah, some right, red, blue, pearl, orange, all kinds of pearl, you know, <laughs> boomfos and whatever. Now, uh, the the story with the headphones and the Happy Jack. Oh yeah, well yeah, the headphones and the Happy Jack. Yeah. Um, well, the Happy Jack, the Who, and. Um, Grand Funk, Grand Funk Live, uh, Grand Funk Railroad Live. That was my two first rock and roll records that I got. My folks bought a Lon Jean Symphonette record player, and with it you get to pick like five records, you know. So I got to pick my two, and my folks bought theirs. And, uh, man, I wore those records out. But you, know? uh, you don't have a teacher. You're learning by playing yeah, along. I, yeah, I never I never took yeah. no lessons in drums, and I couldn't afford to. Uh, and... Uh, in my shed, I just set up all my records and put on my headphones, and I just play my heart out. I didn't even, uh, I quit surfing. I, I loved him so much. Yeah. I played every day for hours on end, you know. To the happy Jack. Now, this is Keith Moon. This yeah. is a, kind yeah, of a good Keith, teacher in a way. Yeah, yeah. The other guy, Don Brewer, I think, was the grand funk guy. Yeah, I can't remember his name. but he had a big fro. Yeah. <laughs> well, you had was one. A, you know, by the time I was 19, then I had yeah. quite a few records as, assembled right, right. by then. You know, everywhere from what was coming out then, UFO and Rory Gallagher and Genesis. You know, I even try to play to things that I couldn't even comprehend, you know. Yeah. But it, I just loved doing it, and I would just play till into the dark, you know, hours on end. Every day, pack my drums inside this, this big chest I had because I was scared someone was going to steal them, you know, when I wasn't around. Right, 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 right. I was just obsessed. But uh, that's how I, I learned how to play drums, and then... Within a couple of years, uh, we got together. Right, but did you, did you jam with other guys, or was it just yeah, headphone sure. rock? We, yeah, sure. Okay. There was other guys. You know, there was the stoner pad there, too. You right, know, but right. I had my drums in there now. So, you know, I re there was guys that were, you know, played guitar and Fabian. bass. Fabian Mayorga and, yeah. you know, uh, Fernando Magalanes yeah. and a uh, few, few other people. And we come over. Was and Ryan playing then? Tom Ryan. Yeah, yeah he was playing then, too. Yeah, okay. absolutely. John Malero. You know, they come like over that. and jam. In fact, one of the first recordings I really did was with Tom Ryan and John Malero. Okay. I did a song for them. Uh, uh, I, I can't even remember the name of it. it were, but whatever, that was our first recording. We went down to Orange County and recorded it uh, at the studio. But uh, soon after that, uh, I met you. Us, right. Yeah. And uh, Martin was living... At Land's End with... Well, uh, yeah, I worked with Martin. He, he right, worked at right. S.H. Crest, yeah. We worked together. And uh, 
he was hanging at Lands End with Ed Nielsen and right, that's there were right. Mermaids, and that was another another leg of the stoner pad that just <laughs> went out beyond its reach. Or I remember uh, you had to bust in the head to get sit, get me. Yeah, Save I got me. You, uh, who is this guy anyway? Well, he graduated <laughs> with you. You should know him. I go, yeah, I, I can't. Yeah, I guess I, I if familiar to me. Well, when are we going to get in the bathroom? Because he's passed out there, <laughs> fucking hugging the urine there, fucking out cold. We, can't, we got our bladders are like fucking like prolapsed belly, you know. <laughs> we had to break in the goddamn bathroom to drag you out of there. And then you took me home. Yeah, I took you. You slung me over. A couple over. times. I think you had, well, well that was the first one. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times you'd creep home and you bug, you know, hung over the steering wheel. <clears throat> yeah. And, yeah. But, that's uh, true. oh shit, we got to play some music. Okay. Words, English words, are full of echoes, memories, of associations, 
They've been out and about on people's lips, in their houses, in the streets, in the fields, for so many centuries. And that is one of the chief difficulties in writing in today. They're stored with other meanings, with other memories, and they have contracted so many famous marriages in the past. The splendid word incarnadine, for example, who can use that without remembering multitudinous seas? In the old days, of course, when English was a new language, writers could invent new words and use them. Nowadays, it's easy enough to invent new words. They spring to the lips whenever we see a new sight or feel a new sensation. But we cannot use them because the English language is old. You cannot use a brand new word in an old language because of the very obvious, yet always mysterious fact that a word is not a single and separate entity. It is part of other words. Indeed, it is not a word until it is part of a sentence. Words belong to each other. Although, of course, only a great poet knows that the word incarnadine belongs to multitudinous seas. To combine new words with old words is fatal to the constitution of the sentence. In order to use new words properly, you would have to invent a whole new language, and that, though no doubt we shall come to it, is not at the moment our business. Our business is to see what we can do with the old English language as it is. How can we combine the old words in new orders so that they survive, so that they create beauty, so that they tell the truth? That is the question. And the person who could answer that question would deserve whatever crown of glory the world has to offer. Think what it would mean if you could teach or if you could learn the art of writing, why every book, every newspaper we pick up would tell the truth or would create beauty. But there is, it would appear, some obstacle in the way, some hindrance to the teaching of words. For though at this moment at least a hundred professors are lecturing at the literature of the past, at least a thousand critics are reviewing the literature of the present, and hundreds and hundreds of young men and women are passing examinations in English literature with the utmost credit, still, do we write better? Do we read better than we read and wrote 400 years ago when we were unlectured, uncriticised, untaught? Is our modern Georgian literature a patch on the Elizabethan? Well, where are we to lay the blame? Not on our professors, not on our reviewers, not on our writers, but on words. It is words that are to blame. They are the wildest, freest, most irresponsible, most unteachable of all things. Of course, you can catch them and sort them and place them in alphabetical order, in dictionaries. But words do not live in dictionaries. They live in the mind. If you want proof of this, consider how often, in moments of emotion, when we most need words, we find none. Yet there is a dictionary. There are at our disposal of some half million words, all in alphabetical order. But can we use them? 
No, because words do not live in dictionaries, they live in the mind. Look once more at the dictionary. There, beyond a doubt, lie plays more splendid than Anthony and Cleopatra, poems lovely on the oak to Nightingale, novels beside which Pride and Prejudice or David Copperfield are the crude bunglings of amateurs. It's only a question of finding the right words and putting them in the right order. We can't do it because they do not live in dictionaries, they live in the mind. And how do they live in the mind? Variously and strangely, much as human beings live, ranging hither and thither, falling in love, meeting together. It is true they are much less bound by ceremony and convention than we are. Royal words meet with commoners. English words marry French words, German words, Indian words, Negro words, if they have a fancy. Indeed, the less we inquire into the past of our dear mother English, the better it will be for that lady's reputation. For she has gone a roving, a roving fair maid. Thus to lay down any laws for such irreclaimable vagabonds is worse than useless. A few trifling rules of grammar and spelling is all the constraint we can put on them. All we can say about them as we peer at them over the edge of that deep, dark and only fitfully illuminated cavern in which they live, the mind, all we can say about them is that they seem to like people to think before they use them and to feel before they use them. But to think and to feel not about them, about something different. They are highly sensitive easily made self-conscious. They do not like to have their purity or their impurity discussed. If you start a society for pure English, they will show their resentment by starting another for impure English, hence the unnatural violence of much modern speech, the protest against the Puritans. They are highly democratic, too. They believe that one word is as good as another. Uneducated words, as good as educated words. Uncultivated words, as good as cultivated words. There are no ranks or titles in their society. Nor do they like being lifted on the point of a pen and examined separately. They hang together in sentences, paragraphs, sometimes the whole pages at a time. Then they hate being useful. They hate making money. They hate being lectured about in public. In short, they hate anything that stamps them with one meaning or confines them to one attitude. For it is our nature the change. Perhaps that is our most striking peculiarity, their need of change. It is because the truth they try to catch is many-sided, and they convey it by being many-sided, flashing first this way, then that. Thus they mean one thing to one person, another thing to another person. They are unintelligible to one generation, playing the pike staff to the next. And it is because of this complexity, this power to mean different things to different people, that they survive. Perhaps then one reason why we have no great poet, novelist or critic writing today is that we refuse to allow words their liberty. We pin them down to one meaning, their useful meaning, the meaning which makes us catch the train, the meaning which makes us pass the examination.
Watch from Pedro Show. Uh, we heard uh, Yours Gray, the digest version from Sawako. Then Craftsmanship, of essay from Virginia Woolf. I think that's the only recording of her voice. Then the Doctor Who theme by Delia Derbyshire. Uh, and then Four Aspects from Daphne Aram. Those are two English ladies who were in with uh, electronic music in its infancy. They were pioneers. Uh, back here with George Hurley. We're talking about rescuing me from the head at Land's End and getting me back after... I think what it was was... Uh, I think it was Mezcal. It had a worm. Oh, the tequila. Yeah, yeah or well, maybe it was tequila or anybody something. Anybody lives in but California I, I, knows I, what that is. <laughs> You gotta do the worm when you're, you know, stupid fuck. <laughs> and I puke my brains out. And yeah. anyway, one good thing about I know it was a stoner pad and shit, but it was a pad you could play drums. And this was a problem with me and D Boone finding drummers. We had no prac pads, mm. and here we had two things: a guy who could really play drums and a guy who had a prac pad. Sure. And so, yeah, this is the beginning of the reactionaries. That's with right. With Martin. Yeah. And this 1978. I remember that pad. I don't think those dudes ever took the trash. They only lived there like seven or eight months. Remember, they had it all in that big cabinet and fruit yeah. flies. And yeah. I remember Frank Telercio like puked, and they just put yeah. a waste paper basket over the puke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. You know, and when they didn't want to look at it, they just ate mushrooms and turned towards the sky. <laughs> put firecrackers on frogs and shot them off the balcony or whatever the crazy things they used to do. So, uh, you know. You were going to gigs, right? We were going up to Hollywood and seeing punk gigs. Yep. What about those drummers? What did you think of those guys? Uh, I thought, well, I mean, she's real. Well, we, we, you figure I was listening to a lot of, uh, like, you know, UFO and arena uh, rock. Yeah, arena rock bands. Yeah. And Rush was just coming out, and yeah. you know, and I and then going up and see the punk rock bands uh, was pretty pretty amazing. It was uh, actually so. It, not what I expected when we first started going. Yeah. And it was the, the freedom of just doing anything you want, having your own band, having your own sound. Of course, it, punk rock kind of changed after that. Yeah, of I, I, But there was a lot of u unique and diverse bands that had to offer a lot. for. I mean, for drum parts, I mean, hell yeah. yeah. It's not all you have this glitzy, fast, or fancy parts. They just were more into the sound than they were into the technical bullshit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But also at the same time, too, I used to go to the the waterfront dive, the jazz, jazz uh, in Hermosa Beach. Yeah, what's that play? Uh, Sweetwater. Peter, 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 no, the jazz joint. The old. Oh yeah, concert uh, by the sea. No, no, no. Uh, it was a concert. Uh, lighthouse. Anyway, the lighthouse, right? Waterfront dive. That's where all these jazz bands used to play sure. for years. I know, I know. Miles yeah. Davis has a record. And for I me. started going there when I was like 18, 19 years old, and man, I'd see Max Roach, and I'd see all yeah, kinds I saw of him there with great jazz musicians, you know. And and I was just learning drums it, even before I bought the kit. I was going there, and I, I learned a lot from that too because I seen those guys playing on these little garage garage sale kits, like but. Playing on them like magicians, man. Yeah. And that's kind of, and I looked at Rush, and I see all these drums and these gongs, and I see these guys playing jazz, and they're doing stuff that was just amazing. It kind of, I kind of realized that it's really not what you got, it's what you do with what I you got, it. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a pretty good influences, you know, with the jazz thing, and then coming into the punk rock thing, 
Uh, and then we were getting also them trippy records from England, yeah. bands we never really yeah. saw because yep. they never played here. Right, but there we were listening good, to their records. Sure. And those man, like the pop group Cat, Scritty, uh, Politty, and all Bruce kinds Smith. Of, yeah, uh, the, yeah, some wild ass sounds. Yeah, in those the electronic days. bands, Throbbing Gristle, and you know, yeah, it was quite diverse music too. Yeah, it was really exciting. That was that sure was fun, you know. Going to Zed Records in Long Beach. Yeah, that's where we get them. Saving up enough money to go there and get some 45s. Any chance you got a little extra money, you'd be, let's go to Zed's and get some money. I know, yeah. I know. Tons yeah. of them. Yeah. And not really know the bands, just taking a gamble. Hey, yep. what's this going to sound like? Right, exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah, hey, I mean, there's a so, lot of good bands. What about when you got your real kit? Right, the, the white, the, the white yeah. kit? The Rogers drum set. That was yeah. the Rogers. I went up with my friend Magalan, uh, Fernando Magalanes, and I said, let's go up to, to L, uh, Hollywood. I just got enough money. I want to go look for a kit. So I went up there. I think I went to a couple of different places. I don't remember where I bought it from. But you know what's trippy? You had that old Slingerland set. Where'd you get that, yeah. that wood slings? Jeez. You know what? You got it around that same time. Yeah, I, go up, I went up there and I bought pieces here and there, you know, up there. I really didn't have enough money to buy a really nice, nice kit. But I, I had enough money to put a kit together. Yeah, yeah, I remember. So, That's the first thing you used in a minute, man. And yeah. then you moved to a Vistalite. Yeah, then I came across the Vistalite. Yeah, where did you get that? Where did I get I got I that Bobby Ho's got it now. I got it from Ed Nielsen. That's right. Yeah, he got inspired That's to play right. drums. He worked with me and, and Marty at SH Crest. So That's right. Ed got inspired to play drums, and he started a band, too. So he, he was into it, too. And I guess their band broke up, and he wanted to sell the Vistalites, and right. I bought them from him. Except yeah. one of the Toms, I think you got on a tour. Yeah, I got cracked. Yeah, so that's I had to, right. Only that's I had right. to find a smoked colored one. Smoked. Sly and the Family Stone had a nice yeah. Vista Lights. That was midnight. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of those midnight cats. special. Yeah. A lot of you know. And in those days, you carried your hardware in a golf sack, yeah. right? Oh, no yeah. trap kits. Yeah, because a bag was kind of hard, and a golf sack had wheels. Man, you yeah. stuff all the stands in there and wheel it on. Into the club. I that, remember you did yeah. get a, 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 a trap case. It was a country singer. Yeah, Mae West. Dottie West. Dottie West. Mae West right. was that. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> Dottie West, right. I'm staying corrected. I still have that case. Yeah. I still have the it. The whole kit would fit in there. Yep. Except for the kick Most drum. Of, well, no, yeah. A couple of the toms and all the hardware. Yeah. Yeah. That, that thing I could had, be beef. Do I still have that case? I think I do. It's kind of squarish. Yeah, just square case. Yeah. But, uh, Road case. Yeah. But before that, it was the golf sack, man. And a lot of dudes weren't doing that then. Yeah, but <laughs> a couple guys were after that. <laughs> right. But it only made sense. It was just easier to bring them all in, you know. Uh, the sticks for a while. Remember the, the, the trippy sticks? Was it in Carson? Some kind of carbon filament? Oh, that was Aquarian sticks, yeah. Carbon fiber sticks. Yeah. And yeah, I used them for a little while. They were okay. They didn't break, right? That's what no, was good No, they broke. About. They oh. broke, but they just lasted about five times longer. But uh, they were okay, I guess. You know, they they stayed kind of. What did you use, JoJo two Bs? No, 
I use different. I use a little smaller stick now, but no, but in those like, days, like yeah, two bees. Because uh, I remember going to the store and there was a stick called JoJo. Was that the name? Yeah, yeah, right, JoJo's. <laughs> JoJo's. That's right. That's right. Now the big thing is Vic Firth and shit. But I remember in those yeah. days there were JoJo's. Uh-huh. I don't even know if they still have those. I don't think so. When we go to the store, you'd be looking for the JoJo yeah. two bees, and you'd roll them right because you said well, yeah, they were I'm always sure you on. Want, you don't want them too out of whack. They can be. There's natural wood, so you got to check them out and make sure they're. You know, not going to break on the first whack. Some of them did, you know, ping. Oh, yeah, You know, yeah. hey, five bucks right. a pair or four bucks a pair, that was kind of expensive. Fuck, yeah. If a young person wants to get started on drums, what would you tell them for advice? Well, I would tell them they got to practice every day. They got to commit to it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot, of, it, it takes a lot of discipline. You got to really love them if you love them. Or like any instrument, you're going to do it. If you love it and you want to do it, you will do it. Can't think about it. You gotta yeah. do it. Yeah, play with the guys that are better than you if you can, or anybody, guys anybody for that matter. Guys that are better if you can. It's a lot easier for you to play, and you'll learn. You'll learn how to you'll a lot be, faster, a bit faster. You'll be weighing them down instead of them yeah, weighing right, you exactly. down. Yeah, right. Exactly. Don't let them know that though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, hey, you know, you do what you can to learn. Uh, so uh, we're doing this fourth unknown instructor album. What's different than the other three? Well, of course, uh, the other ones were pretty much a shoot em from a hip style. Improvise, right? Yeah, we we shot it out there. And so this one, we're, like we're kind of getting tunes together, a little different. Right, so now we're in the studio doing these for Dan. He, he's got a, he wants a little more substance and a little more, I guess, focus on him. So structure? Structure, yes, absolutely. I think so. Joe Biza wants that too. Because yeah. Joe Biza's not here with us. He's waiting for the rhythm section yeah. to get it together. Yeah. Right. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show, Georgie. Well, my you got pleasure, some gigs Mike. coming up. We'll yes. talk about that stuff later. But uh, very good. Uh, thanks right. for uh, any other advice to a wannabe drummer. Well, uh, save you money. Sticks are expensive. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Stay away from the girls. No. <laughs> <laughs>
some new wave.
Pedro Show, just heard Off the Wall by Lee Ronaldo, his new solo thing. Before that, we had uh, On the Surface, some live Perubu. Uh, before that, John Wayne Bro with Talk About It, Walk Around It. Ahead of that was The Day My Baby Gave Me a Surprise, something live from Clawhammer, Devo cover. And we started... Off the last chunk of music for the first hour with uh, What's Fair by Free Kitten. And uh, it was so great to have Georgie on the show. A little quick visit there where uh, we're recording this fourth round of the Unknown Instructors. Uh, it's a January 24th, 2012. Off for Pedro shows. Hold tight for hour two. January 24th, 2012, it's the second hour of the Watt from Pedro show. And here's uh, Mr. Matt Sherrar, going to read you a story he wrote called A Good Marksman. Pete Steiner was a good shot. Friday nights at the firing range helped him unwind after a long week of teaching inner-city gangsters at Angel's Gate Annex in the humble port town of San Pedro. He whispered the well-worn contradiction, Angel's Gate, and fired. His red earmuffs rattled as the round leaped off the forty-four caliber. 
It hit his intended target, the oval-shaped heart of a silhouetted man. Again, he took aim. The picture he'd posted on his Facebook flashed into his brain. His male and female students proudly throwing up their gang signs. Before the next round, he suppressed his cynicism. After all, weren't these kids the future proletariat, the soon-to-be working class? And wasn't he, Pete Steiner, the only avowed Marxist on the school staff in the entire city of San Pedro, for all he knew, the one who was supposed to guide them to their brighter future? He rerouted his hopelessness to anger, funneling the force of the next round on his wife. What was her infatuation with Chris Garney, the Palisades teacher who lived and worked higher on the hill than he did. Was she stroking him to get me a job at Palos Verdes High so we could move from her shithole port town to finally realize her dream of upward mobility? Or was she cheating on me with Garney, his holiday gifts, bits of advice, and lavish dinners a cover-up for their class system swapping affair? Pete Steiner couldn't help but think they were swapping more than neighborhoods as Garney's wife, the head accountant for Hard Rock Cafe, was never home. And even if Cafe was cheating, would he care? He could never say what he really thought about the relationship. As soon as she met him, Cafe thought Steiner was her ticket, the leather-jacketed writer who was one big sail away from giving, all, from giving her all the riches she had ever desired. But she never happened to ask him what he was writing low-paying pedagogical research. Within six weeks, she was pregnant. Before the kid was even born, they were growing distant, especially after Steiner dragged it out of her that she had torn the condom with a safety pin. But introspection on Pete's part revealed double culpability. He was lost, reeling from his parents' deaths, and she was also lost, aimless after exiting her life as a stripper stage left. The matrimonial ultimatum she handed Pete was a downright threat, down to the proviso that it had to be in Hawaii, far from any prying family fingers. On the flight home, Pete realized this was the act of a psychotic control freak, as he had no family members left to speak of. Even after Pete Jr. was born, Pete and Kathy remained the same. He, a Motor City madman, a philosopher, teacher, journeyman, and she, a stunner who started partying just late enough after college and stopped just early enough before the pregnancy to maintain her wondrous curves throughout her 30s. Pete Steiner moved in two directions with his wife, inward and away. A knee-jerk bottler of emotions, he always left his wife to the sanctity of her anger. This gave him ample time to dive into his research. Soon he had all of his hard copies in a safe in his cellar, along with his own personal forty-four caliber. Steiner's other hobbies? Hiking, running, and shooting the silhouette of a blank man. He pulled off another round, trying to tug some control over his life. Like always, he thought of Detroit, of bullets lying in gutter water like pebbles, and of his dead cop parents, both who were killed on duty. Their deaths had made him flee the Motor City. He couldn't bear sitting next to his dad's empty spot in their long-standing box seat during Red Wings hockey games. His dad died first in a drug bust in an eight-mile trailer. 
His mom was next, right before her promotion to detective, shot down by a slug in the projects. Their death sent Pete on his slanted Bruce Wayne path, teaching inner-city L.A. teens who were trapped by the same problems of those Detroit kids, minus the high-rise tenements. He gripped the gun, trying to squeeze control. After his parents' deaths, Pete worried that he would revile the lower class. But knowing his parents fought to help them fight against the system, he only felt an inner line to their pain. Pete also worried that he'd try to attain the opposite bourgeois lifestyle, that he'd pine for its safety. He did the exact opposite. Unlike his wife, he wanted to abolish the bourgeois class, to even the divide, to overthrow the system, just like Marx, his new guiding light, had one day dreamed to. Gripping the gun, he took control. The gun, he felt, was an extension of his parents' memory. His parents, blue-collar folks who would have abhorred his wife's neurotic refusal to work. He knew one thing about Kathy and Garney. If their fraternizing progressed, as it had since the first day they had met at Vaughn's, the Steiner's upward mobility was inexorable. He would become what he and his parents hated. The Steiners were only renting a house now. Soon they would buy one in the right town, his wife called it, Palos Verdes, where their son would soon attend high school, where a job appeared to be waiting, ready to be hand-delivered by Garney, one of the most respected men on the school board. It was the next step up the ladder, the job the means to an end of a new house, a new beginning, which was how... Kathy measured things in newness. Steiner pulled off another round, smelling the gunpowder. Control, he kept thinking, repeating the Marxist principle. Control, which should be passed around equally. I either have to move up or move out, Pete Steiner thought, pulling off another acrid round. Those are my only two options. Drinks with Garney at nine, without wifey. Drinks were at the Admiral Risti, an upscale Palos Verdes fish restaurant with full bar. If Pete was on good behavior, Garney joked, he would get him into the Elks Lodge next week, he and wifey. You ever had the fried scallops here? I've never been here, Pete said, looking through the big bay windows at the Palos Verdes coastline. Its waters dark and uninviting, like a chasm no one dare tread. Pete thought Garney was testing him with his questions, instituting his superiority right off the bat, letting Pete know that he was the one who had something to offer, and that Pete was lucky to have his gilded assistance. They also have a Monday night football special here, dollar hot dogs and free chili, Garney said, and it took Steiner two pretzels to read it as an insult. Steiner kept peeking at Garney's Rolex and thinking about how they taught the same job, pulled the same output of labor, but with a ridiculous gulf in pay. Screw that, Steiner thought. I work harder than Garney, risking my ass with gangsters for no hazard pay. Got the job straight out of college, Garney said, at one point fondling the rim of his drink, so I could zoom up the pay scale. How does it work at Angel's Gate? a non-profit school. There is no scale, Pete said, but kept thinking. Pari passu, repeating the French phrase, everything at an equal rate or pace. 
an idea he'd added last week to his magnum opus, which he dreamed would join the pedagogical canon. Carney and I live ten minutes apart, but there's no pari passu. This was their first time drinking together sans cafe, and Steiner thought it was becoming more like a screening session as questions about Pete's personal life kept trickling in. What does Kathy do for work? Tossed, like Garney's salad, in between other non-related questions. Do you go to church? A swerve question. Steiner had taken Logic 101. Where'd you vote this year? A lead-up question, like the butter Garney slathered on his warm bread rolls. When Steiner twirled around on his bar seat and saw only a few old-timers dining at the late late night shift, he knew Garney had picked a spot conducive to interrogation. Pete humored him, doling out white lie responses along with kernels of truth about the real Pete. But he watched his drunken mouth, making sure the topic of his private research didn't slip out. His secrets were safe in his cellar. The red-penned and edited hard copies were locked there in a safe and his files encrypted so they couldn't be accessed. Pete Steiner was a Marxist, a true acolyte of Karl and his principles, which said that bourgeoisies like Garney were to be thrown down from their damned thrones. Pete, drunker and drunker, found himself reeling from Garney's interrogation. Garney's questions became looser, more watery, like the ice cubes in Garney's drinks that were melting by the heat of the glass acorn flame. Incisive, cutting questions like, How's your sex life? Questions that made Pete stare into the chasm, made him cling to the only good angle of tonight's affair. How was Garney going to cheat with Kathy when when he was here and she was at home? Pete Steiner woke up with a hangover as well as the satisfaction that Garney hadn't pried away his most guarded secrets, his Marxism, his Friday afternoon firing range sessions, his entrapped feelings about his wife and the kid, which would have eased Garney's guilt in trying to screw his wife if he wasn't already doing it, and that he was on the final edit of his treatise on the state of our educational system. No child left behind? Be real. Equal education for all students. Lying in bed alone, Steiner realized he had actually, in reverse, distilled information about his interrogator. He recalled some sound bites about Garney's personal life, which revealed a few hairline cracks in the picture. For one, Garney's accountant wife, eternally on call or flying to major cities, was a wife in absentia including the bed from what Steiner had gathered. How often do you do it? Garney's five times a week, Steiner could plainly see, was an outright lie. Garney's loose tongue, which admitted he was one of the highest-ranking members at the Elks Lodge, left hints that he may have been a member of at least one other private-type society. Pete Steiner had a hangover, but he also had to teach swimming lessons up at Chadwick School. What do you do to unwind? Garney had asked Steiner when they had first met. Swim, was Pete's answer. A lie. Steiner rarely swam. His hobby was hiking. One afternoon, having drinks on Garney's back porch, Steiner, aloof from the conversation, surveyed the hills. The terrain would have provided a good workout hike, 
not too steep, with enough brush and rock action for a variety. Pete thought he'd never actually be able to do the hike, as Garney's house was still under construction, the only one in the new community with no other houses visible in any direction. If he attempted the hike, Pete thought, Garney would surely spot him and think Steiner was spying. At first, the Saturday swimming gig proved to be the perfect getaway from Pete's family, but doubt soon crawled in. Was it a setup by Garney so Kathy could hightail it to Garney's house, house in the four-door so they could get it on? Pete crawled out of bed, seeing Kathy preparing herself through the crack of the interior bedroom door, like she always did, making sure Pete had a naked sliver of her so she could assert her sexual control. It's a free Saturday morning workout, Pete had told Kathy at first, and she vacillated on letting him do it until he mentioned that godly Garney was the architect of the deal. Kathy hadn't passed his test, or he hadn't passed hers, unsure if she was in on the setup with Garney in the first place. Pete walked past his son's door, also opened just a sliver. The kid sat goggle-eyed in front of the TV screen, and Pete could tell he had been up all night, frying his brain and everything else while he pointed that damn gun at the screen and shot, 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 catatonic. Pete couldn't help it, but an image of the deflated condom pierced by the safety pin by Kathy found him. Steiner tiptoed by the room, not wanting to jar the 13-year-old from his gun hypnotism, not wanting to deal, for he worried that the kid had become the white version of his students. Though Pete Jr. pointed a plastic Xbox 360 gun, whereas their guns were loaded, like Steiner's, down in the cellar, locked in his safe. Steiner peeked into the room, seeing his son nodding off even as he pulled the trigger, and thought of the politicization of sleep, an idea that ran off from Marx, that 24 hours a day the government or the bourgeoisie are watching you, even while you sleep. Pete thought he would have to live every day of his life that way, awake and watching and on high alert, if the Steiner family sold out to Garney. Monday through Friday, Work week. Mr. Steiner taught a class on the philosophy of Star Wars, reviewing the plot and theme with the students for two hours. They soon overrode him, wielding lightsabers in pairs. The lightsabers quickly turned into air guns. Mr. Garney left early, leaving his seventh period class to his assistant for an hour. He slipped out the back to the side parking lot and zoomed away in his beamer. Mr. Steiner went to work early and read the local newspaper. He discovered one of his students in the crime log, realizing why he had been absent the previous day. Mr. Garney passed out a social studies packet and peeled open his morning copy of the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Steiner watched one of his Chola students walk into the room with two broken arms, cussing at the girls who had delimbed her, but helpless to fight back. Mr. Garney flirted with Miss Hannigan. At lunch, Mr. Steiner tried to stop the friend of the D-Lim Chola girl from taking out one of her enemy's eyes with a fork. He failed, wondering how a plastic fork could go that deep and send so much blood spurting. Mr. Garney took off early, leaving his seventh period class with his assistant. 
Mr. Steiner wrenched his back, breaking up a fight between two massive gang members, race-related, and tumbled to the ground before help came, late, like it always did. Mr. Garney took Friday off, leaving his class to the in-school substitute. He wanted to spend part of his $6,500 paycheck, $4,500 more than Mr. Steiner's, on his lover. Mr. Steiner left work late, staring at the pile of paperwork that was left after a week of two broken arms, a forked face, and a student in absentia. Pete Steiner blew off rounds at the firing range, chipping hole after hole into the blank man. The rainy drive up to the Elks Lodge had plenty of twists and turns, as well as one big peak. Pete, still sitting in his truck, thought if you traced the line from the lodge to Garney's house, you'd get a straight line. The exclusive club seemed like the perfect choice for Garney's home away from home. A man's man's paradise, Pete thought, peering past his wife and through the rain and into the club at the taxidermied lion whose roar was magnified by a fancy sconce light. Do I look all right, Kathy said, primping in the passenger side mirror. Pete Steiner barely had to turn to see her long black chasm of cleavage. Fine, he said. Their son was sleeping over at a friend's house, doing the same catatonic gun gaze he would have been doing at home. I wonder if Chris is inside, Kathy said. I don't want to be left out in the rain waiting for him, because you know we can't go in there without him. That'd be embarrassing if they turned us away at the front. We're just going to have to wait here in the car. Pete Steiner, knowing they would just have to wait here in the car, tried to hide his smirk. Can a man be measured by his woman, he thought, as he sat in his truck, waiting, listening to the ping of rain, rain on the hood. At a dinner party, Kathy agreed with a drunk guy's assertion that all women are crazy. Pete knew she said it as a slight of phrase, a deft lie to outplay the other men in the room who were listening to her and looking at her. Pete, not looking at her but watching her, knew that Kathy's crazy was controlled craziness, and she used it to get what she wanted in life. Garney burst through the front doors of the lodge. There's Chris, Pete's wife said expectantly. He was wearing an immaculately tailored suit and had an umbrella propped over his head. Always prepared, thought Pete. Kathy glowed the more she looked at him. Chris and Kathy Garney. My God, that had such a better ring to it. Pete and Kathy scampered in through the rain and Garney led them inside. There was an old man at the front desk and Garney told him, they're with me to which the old-timer mechanically rep replied, Garney plus two. As soon as he stepped inside, Steiner could smell the meat burning. One peek into the main hall and his senses were confirmed. A smiling bakery-hatted Asian chef was flipping steaks on an open grill, Old Vegas style. Well-dressed patrons gathered around him, their drinks lifted to him in a toast. Garney said he had to hit the bathroom, and Kathy said she did too. Pete didn't want to stand there and appear that he was wondering if they were going to have a 10-second tryst in the restroom, so he plopped down in one of the leather chairs in the front lounge. He peeked at a small library shelf that had been positioned in the lounge for patron perusal. Kathy and Chris, what a romantic ring that had, took too long, 
took too long. He worried that the fossil at the front might forget his face and send him out the door after snapping his fingers for some hidden security guard. Pete drew his crosshairs to a closer target. He spied the magazines and brochures on the oak wood table, combing them for any secret society symbolism or phraseology. When Kathy and Chris returned, Pete dropped the architectural digest with a thud. They had one drink at the bar, which Garney, since non-members were not allowed, had to order from one of the Hispanic bartenders, and another drink at their dinner table, also ordered and paid for by Garney. The cream de menthe shamrock crowning the whipped cream of Pete's Irish coffee looked cool until Pete started thinking about money, and that whipped cream was just unmanly. Not long after, they stepped up to the chef and had steaks on the house. The night was uneventful, to Pete's shock. Carney's drinking pace was also much slower than the previous Friday at the fish restaurant. After Garney's regulatory history of the Elks Lodge dealt out like a school lesson with all the juicy parts left out, he said, If you don't mind, Kathy, we'd like to meet with Pete later at my house. You know, a few guys from the district and me. No, Chris, that's perfect. Not fine like Pete had said Kathy had looked earlier, but perfect. I wouldn't call it an after-party, Garney said, but it is a guy's thing. Mr. Youngren from the school board will be there, and I think it will be best for Pete to meet him in a laid-back setting. Steiner wondered if the big night out at the Elks was all a setup. Aren't the guys here, Pete said, looking across the sparsely populated dance floor. Why can't I just meet them here? They're having dinner somewhere else, Garney said. Pete hid wrinkles of worry. He'd never gone to Garney's house without Kathy. I'll drop Kathy off and be over, Pete finally said. The conversation moved to the lounge, where Pete watched the lion roaring at a closer range. When Garney peeled out in the rain-slick road, Steiner, through the mist, read the plates on Garney's BMW, Chris's W. When Pete Steiner drove back to his rented house, he found that the tires of his other car, the four-door, had been slashed. An argument with Kathy quickly ensued. It was one of your hoodlum students, she said. How the hell did they find out where we live? It's small-scale terrorism, Pete said, trying to cover up his hunch that Garney and his buddies were the perpetrators and were sending him some kind of message. Damn students, Kathy said, Pete wondering if he, she was somehow in on it. It's barely 10 o'clock, Pete said after checking his watch. No hood would do this on our lighted street. No, it was those fucking gangsters. Small-scale terrorism, Pete insisted. Like when the Serbs and Croats used to slash each other's tires in the 90s. When she wouldn't agree it was small-scale terrorism, Pete asked, Are you fucking him? What, she said. After a silence, he honed in on his target again. Are you fucking him? What are you getting at, Pete? I'm getting at, are you fucking him? He said, slamming his hands on the hood of the limp four-door. Once, was all she said, in a whisper. Pete weaved his way around her and stormed through the rain and into the house. Only once, he screamed. I didn't plan it like this, she said, trailing off. Pete slammed the door leading into the cellar. He was the only one with the key and locked it. 
He bounded down the stairs and started pacing and thinking about as fast as the businessman who had driven his Porsche at 120 miles an hour off the PV coastline story he had read about in the Daily Breeze. After pacing, he thought of a plan. He had to do two things. One was send a text to Garney saying he'd be a little late. Two was to go online down here in his man cave. Though Detroit instantly popped into his head, he thought that might be too obvious. Move up or move out. What the hell are you doing down there? Kathy screamed through the crack of the door at the top of the cellar. Pete remained silent in the cellar, preparing. Kathy stood silent in the kitchen, trapped behind the door. I did it for us, Pete, she whispered, but Pete Steiner couldn't hear. He was caught up in finishing his to-do list. When Steiner was done, he unlocked the safety box, took out the gun, and hid it in his jacket and ran up the stairs and passed Kathy and out of the house, praying she didn't think he was going to do something crazy, praying she didn't give Garney a heads up. Park at the bottom of the hill, far enough so he doesn't hear my engine approach, but close enough for a clean getaway. The rain was driving now and it helped conceal Steiner, along with the underbrush, though he was a lone wolf up in the empty hills. Hike up to the hill's edge, unnoticed, he thought. Make your way through the brush. He pushed up the hill, plowing through the underbrush, until he lifted himself up to the precipice and stood on the edge of the hill, rain peppering his face. His to-do list was a series of emphatic instructions, and they pounded in his rain-rattled brain, stepped forward out of the brush and into the view of Garney and his men. Make sure they see me through the rain. Final step, scare the living shit out of Chris Garney. Pete watched Garney and his two friends standing in a cabal-like triangle in the backyard. They laughed, smoking cigars and passing around a bottle of liquor. Pete Steiner saw them see him, about a half football field away, but he wasn't sure if they could see his gun. Pete stepped closer, rising through the brush, stepping into the rain. He thought, I'm a good enough shot to kill at this range, but Pete didn't want to shoot just yet. He wanted to see Garney's terrified face. We know what you are, Garney yelled down from his back porch as Pete stepped a few yards closer. And I know what you are, Pete yelled back. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, Garney yelled. We know what you are too, Steiner, one of the men said, his voice cracking a little. Steiner was about 30 yards away now, and he wondered why the men didn't appear threatened. Garney raised a 12-barrel shotgun, and Pete knew why. His thinking went south. Good fences don't make good neighbors, Pete screams snatching one of the maxims he had used in his treatsy. Your wife told me, Garney yelled, about your little secret political experiment, which shocked Pete because he was unsure how she had found out, with his papers locked away and his files encrypted. He had no friends to speak of, and his work colleagues would never let the red elephant loose. But over dinner, or a few dinners, Pete had probably mumbled something political to Kathy, and she had read into it. Eventually, she had told Garney she had to have, and exaggerated the story by botching the details, making Pete's secrecy secrecy appear even more suspect, like her husband could have been a Nazi, a communist, or a jihadist. 
At Garney's waving request, the men stepped over the cobblestone wall and started heading down the hill. They stumbled, making Pete wonder if it was the drink or the underbrush which was making them stagger. Garney followed them, letting them lead the way. Pete retreated. He looked at his gun, reminding himself that it was an extension of himself, his past, his parents, their values, and his. But he still wanted to scare the shit out of Chris Garney, to shoot a bullet so close to his skull that it transformed Garney's life forever. As Garney stalked down the incline, cocking the shotgun at Steiner, their game turned into a mental pickle. Who would shoot first? Pete changed tack, starting to back up. So you only fucked her once? It, it would have been more if that little brat wasn't stuck to her side, Garney barked. Pete was a better shot, but he was outnumbered. Somebody would take him down, whether it was with bullets or fists. He retreated further towards the hill, an idea cresting into his brain. When he was near the hill's edge, he yelled, Do it, Garney! And he waved his gun at Garney. Pete peeked back at the precipice, gauging the fall. He was a hiker, and he knew he could roll through the brush at that gradient and still make it out in one piece. But I might have to make it in two or three rolls. Do it, Pete yelled again, knowing he was far enough from Garney for Garney to miss, but also close enough to make Garney think he'd hit him. Garney fired. Garney's shot was so erroneous, was erroneous enough that it caused minimal worry in Pete Steiner as he pretended to take the hit and roll down the steep Palisverdes Hill and tumbled in the brush until he knew he was far enough out of sight to crawl down and back to his parked truck and make the first of his two getaways. The next night, Kathy Steiner walked up to Garney's door and knocked. Garney let her in, not worried about any neighbor's scene. Not anymore. Kathy spoke loudly, knowing that Garney's wife was in Florida for three more days. After the incident, Chris and Kathy had only talked on the phone once, on their cells, in a fevered jumble. They finally agreed to meet in person. Pete's still missing, she said, and I haven't gotten a call from any hospitals. Garney stared at her for answers. He's not coming back, Chris. I can tell you that. After he found out, he went down into his cellar and started planning something. Something more that one more than what happened at our house. Speaking of the house, what are you going what are we going to do? Even with her sharp sense of control, she couldn't help jumping the gun. When we bought the house, Garney said, I insisted to my wife that we get my teacher's association deal. To save money, cut corners. Kathy stepped closer to Garney. To get the full extent of that loan, the house had to be solely in my name. Sally was so damn busy, she didn't even resist, hardly even noticed, he said with a grin. She funneled enough money into my account so I'd be approved by the loan. I'll be able to make the monthly payment with plenty of money to spare. Kathy grinned back, coming closer to her new man. She'll be easy enough to get rid of, he said. The house is in my name, and my position on the school board, added with the fact that she's never even in the home, will keep everything in our favor. Kathy gathered Garney's eyes. It didn't matter what he was. A cheater, and that all he wanted was a trophy wife. Chris Garney could even have been a Marxist, and it wouldn't have mattered. 
She rubbed his chest, hooking her arms around him and tugging him close. And the boy? She let him answer before she peeled off his shirt. Kathy would be peeling off her own clothes within a year to make up for the insanely high mortgage of her new Palos Verdes home. There would be a child left behind, Steiner thought, staring out of the window of the plane. But only for a while. His son would be temp his son would be temporarily passed along to Garney and eventually would live in his house, which Garney had said was entirely in his name at the fish restaurant. Pete Steiner Jr. would, in his high school years, receive the best education California had to offer. And if Steiner sold his treatsy, all the money would be funneled into Pete Jr.'s college fund. Years later, after working in the Detroit area where his parents had lived and died, and working long enough to make what he thought was a big enough of a change, Pete Steiner Sr. would come back and see his son. It might take a lifetime, but Steiner believed his son would understand his decision. He imagined sitting next to his son at a Red Wings game in his father's old box seat. But now he sat with strangers. Pete looked down at his boarding past, knowing the next one would be coded for Detroit. His little tumble in the underbrush had bought him enough time to get out of America. Pete Steiner wasn't feeling quite feeling Machiavellian in the fake-your-own-death sense, but he was feeling Marxist. That is to say, he was feeling like himself. What are you changing? Who do you think you're changing? You can't change things, we're all stuck in our ways It's like trying to clean the ocean What do you think you can drain it? Well, it was poison and dry long before you came But you can wake up younger under the night can wake up sounder if you get analyzed and I better wake up cause there before the grace of God go I it's hard to believe your prophets when they're asking you to change things but with their suspect lives, we look the other way. Are you really that pure, sir? Thought I saw you in Vegas. It was not pretty, but she was. But she will wake up wealthy. can't escape that way the windows are in flames and what's that on your ankle you say they're not coming for you but house arrest is really just the same, just the same. like when you wake up 
from Pedro show start off the second hour with Matt Sherrar reading his a good marksman story and follow that up with Jane Lewis doing a live version of rise up with this I like that title <laughs> rise up with this I like this band too dirty beaches Oh, 
Okay, well, fuck it. Okay. That's it. Uh, We're breaking up. Yeah, this is going to be our last show. So, um, this is called God is a Basehead. God is a plumber. My God is a drag queen. God is a dumpster. God is Vaseline. God is AIDS. God is war. God is a priest. God is a whore.
that laughter which bespoke the tears of a mother torn from her only child. Can you retrace his serene voice speaking the echoes of a distant valley?
Mott from Pedro Show. You just heard Sister Regis by Sproton Layer. Sproton Layer, sorry. <laughs> uh, Roger Miller and his, uh, I think, brothers. Our brother. Back in Ann Arbor when they were younger. Uh, Greg Ginn reissued that. Um, before that, Village Girl by Honey Nasser, Fabian Olivet, and John Densmore. You know that last name there, right? The Doors drummer. Fabian's drummer man, too. Um, maybe by Ake, ahead of that. God is a bass head from Splotch. Live stuff. Uh, right Seeds by Uzeda. They're Sicilian cats. And before that was Waiting for the Man, a Lou Reed cover by David Bowie. Something over the radio with Mick Ronson way back. And we start off with White Sand by Dirty Beaches. Big respect, Alex. I love that man. Uh, we reached the end of the second hour, January 24th, 2012. Watford Pedro Show. Hold tight for hour three. January 24th, 2012. It's the third hour of the Watt from Pedro show. This is a, this is a song of, of Scott and I's. This man right here, Mr. Krause. And it's called I Call You Right.
apocalyptic vision for y'all on a Saturday night. It's called All Along the Watchtower.
Block from Pedro Show. Started the third hour out with uh, I Call You Right. Something live from Miss Melvis there in Cleveland, Ohio, on the drums. Mr. Scott Krause. Big respect. Big respect. <laughs> Mr. Krause, yeah. A lot of stuff from uh, Bob Teagan and uh, Wendy Hour. We've been playing on this show. He flowed me a bunch of stuff. He's getting his archives together. All along the Watchtower, Bobby Dylan tune reinterpreted by uh, Cinderella Backstreet. This is a band uh, uh, Peter Loftner had. Uh, Cleveland scene, old days, early Perubu, uh, instigator, originator. I remember uh, recording the third opera with Tony Mamoni there in Brooklyn. Uh, he brought out Peter's guitar and Tom got to play on it, Red Strat. Uh, not record. Uh, I wonder if he did. I remember him strumming on it. And then, uh, let's see, this is not from Bob Teagan. Uh, uh, version of Neil Young's Cortez Killer, live by Scott Kelly and Bruce Lamont. I thought it fit somehow. <laughs> okay, here's Chuck Miller with uh, To Be Against. To be against. To be against. To resist everything. To plant yourself against their juggernauts and nick off what you can. To use the resources which they have stolen from all of us against them, to thwart them consistently in whatever small ways, to spread rebellion in the byways, fanning it like some small match fire, two leaves burning brownly together, this some resolve which you feel now strongly, but which tomorrow will waver and almost disappear. A revolutionary consciousness to be attained. How far from really being, actually existing in you. How difficult to communicate this to even one other human being. And to keep in mind when again and again necessity forces us to pursue some diversionary tactic in order to get by how this too might be used to strengthen our own resources and always against them. To survive, which for us is to resist, to take up our part in this long process, which sometimes goes so slowly and with so many setbacks that we think it is not really occurring. But we are edging forward as though part of a wave of consciousness eroding the oppressive shores. What would the Buddha say of all this? Perhaps just to laugh gently and grant us the intensity of our belief. How disappointing this isolate life in which we are so alien from the many. We have grown so strange we hardly recognize one another as human beings? One does not know 
I do not know, and always it seems beginning again, taking a first step. Original Stooge Ron Ashton. His brother Scott Ashton. Newcomer Mike Watt. All right. This is a new fucking song. It's called Dead Fucking Rockstar.
Was running in the shit that's going to take flow Motherfuckers trying to ask me shit With your raspy shit You're trying to pass me shit In fact, you better take for me And think you want to fuck a little skateboard B When the pimps in the crib on Drop it like it's hot Drop it like it's hot Drop it like it's hot When the pigs trying to get at you Pocket like it's hot Pocket like it's hot Pocket like it's hot If a nigga get an attitude Drop it like it's hot Drop it like it's hot Drop it like it's hot I got the money on my wrist And I'm on John Dom I roll the best weed Cause I got it going on Speaking of covers, uh, there's a Snoop Dogg song done by White Coffin. Drop it like it's hardcore. I think they, uh, did they change the title? <laughs> great band, great uh, great rendition too. Uh, before that we had a cover of Stooges done by Radio Birdman, which is... Uh, Infamous Australian band. That was via the Wendy Hour, Bob Teagan, Chris Rees, all them good cats. Uh, ahead of that, we had not a cover, but actual Stooges, although reunited. Ronnie, Scotty, Ig, uh, doing um, Dead Rock Star. I think that was from the Queen Mary, 2004 live um, brother Steve McKay on the sax and I think that's the only time my ma saw me played with, with the Stooges she's got to come to another gig 
She didn't go to the Palladium. Ahead of that, uh, DMF with Crazy Eye. I assume we're going to be playing with them at the Doll Hut in Orange County. We got an invite from uh, Johnny, the main DMF man. I think they got a new bass man. And on the 18th of February, we're going to be there with, with them. Actually, I play uh, before that with Tom and Raul. Uh, Redwood on uh, February 3rd. You can check the MikeWatt.com, HootPage.com, whatever leads you to the same place and tell you. I, uh, if you really want to know, my next gig uh, is Sunday with Dose. Okay, we're going to play like at 6 p.m. the Redwood. And uh, something special for um, Bob Lee and Elise, the LA Beat uh, squad. Um, yeah, Crazy Eye by DMF and I start all off with uh, To Be Against by Chuck Miller. Mm. Yeah, I got another Kings of Lower Town song from Mike up there in Ontario? Ottawa. Ottawa, Ontario. Yeah. Uh, here's a tune called Woodpile. There's a devil.
Hollywood is the vastness Hollow vacuum choppy oxygen tanks They hibernate but have they kissed the ground Pucker up and kiss the asphalt now Taste this amputation Splinter glare wings It has access now from Pedro Show. Last chunk of music for this edition. Oh, by the way, I want to apologize. It's been, what, 23 days or something? More than three weeks since the last show. It's just been so busy. I'll tell you about it next episode. My trip to Memphis and such. I get some music from Dr. Herman Green. and Yeah, we made a mouthful album, but I'll get into that. And uh, we'll have another one next Tuesday. Uh, Brother Matt. It's been a while since I've been on the show with him, but he can talk about his adventure 
to the wellness uh, resort. No, not resort. Uh, compound or retreat or collective something. <laughs> we'll let Brother Matt explain. Anyway, Woodpile by Kings of Lower Town started off that last chunk for this show. And then Let's Have a War by Fear. Yeah, uh, me and my uh, second men have been asked to cover this song for uh, some kind of uh, redo on uh, Repo Man. Or is it the next chapter? I don't know exactly, but great tune. And uh, we're going to give it our own twisty on it in a couple of days. And then, uh, yeah, a couple of bands from the old days have gotten together for... Uh, this Coachella thing in April, uh, The Refused from Sweden with the uh, Summer Holidays versus Punk Routine. Almost as good as Rise Up with this. And uh, Dennis, he's a great cat. He's with some Italiano guys now. Beat, meet Beat, what do they call some? Beat Roots, maybe. And then uh, At the Drive-In, cats from uh, El Paso. Texas, uh, with one arm scissored, and uh, actually I got to uh, be part of a proj with the singer man there, Cedric, called Anywhere with Christian, and uh, a couple seven inches out on uh, New Viking. Uh, God, I got invited. I think there's going to be a second part of Anywhere, and Christian's asked me about that. Good cat. His old band, Triclops, too, was amazing. That's how I met the man. See, I think it was opening up for the Hanson brothers, which were the, the Wright brothers, uh, from No Means No. Great gig. And then we got to play with him, with No Means No, with Triclops and Sacto. Yeah, it all makes sense. It all comes together somehow. Huh. A little bit. <laughs> And it sure is uh, great to Georgie uh, come and talk on the show. But we'll have him aboard again. And some you see about his journey through drums. Very uh, interesting, exciting. God, it makes me want to play drums. You know, I got to set up my prac pad. You know, because I got tired of people setting up and tearing down. I should get into that thing. Put the happy jack on, put the headphones, and <laughs> start swinging. Thank you so much, Georgie. Uh, it's been the January 24th, 2012 edition of the Watt from Pedro show. Back next week with Brother Matt. Keep your powder dry. <laughs>